for the rest of us, we will be in Psalm 16 today. Last week, if you remember, we looked at Psalm 15, and that psalm described the sort of person who can live in God's presence. That was our roadmap. It was marking out the way uh, to security, to steadfastness in the Lord, in God's presence. So we saw things like, do what is right, be honest, love your neighbor, hate evil, keep your word, don't be greedy. And these things served as a kind of a sampling of what God requires for the one who would live in his presence. Follow these directions and you will arrive safely at your destination. Now ultimately, we saw that we must trust in Christ for our righteousness. And only in him can we approach a holy God. This week, we're looking at Psalm 16, which is not so much of a roadmap as it is an expression of the person who's already on the journey. <clears throat> he has the map in his hands. He's been following it for some time, and now he's expressing all that he's experienced thus far and all that he hopes and all that he anticipates for the future. So it's going to have a different feel. It's a little bit different. I think it puts some flesh onto what we heard last week. Uh, last week, Psalm 15 described how, or, uh, described how to live out um, this life, to live in God's presence, whereas Psalm 16 is uh, more of an expression of someone who's doing that. So I'm going to invite Katie Turner up to read her passage. And as she does so, just imagine David, King David, who wrote this psalm, with a map of Psalm 15 in his hand. He's been following its directions down the road of life, and now he stops to, to speak out to God, Psalm 16, which we'll hear right now. 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your holy ones see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thanks, Katie. In Genesis 13, there's this uh, short, seemingly trivial story about Abram, who later became Abraham, and his nephew, Lot. It's about their parting of ways. Both were very well-off, wealthy nomads. They had large herds, large flocks, so much so that the land couldn't support them both. Their herdsmen started to bicker over grazing land. So Abraham, Abram, has this idea, let's, let's part ways. The whole land is before you, Lot. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. So Lot has his whole pick of the land. He looks to the right, he looks to the left, surveys his options. And he has no idea how important 
that this decision in this moment is going to be for the rest of his life. The decision he makes right here is going to set the course for the rest of his life. So to the east, he sees the Jordan Valley, and it's this beautiful land full of green fields. It's described as well-watered, even like the Garden of the Lord. And then on the other side, you have the land of Canaan. Not surprisingly, Lot chooses the lush Jordan Valley. He chooses it for himself. And we read in verse 12 of Genesis 13, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. It seemed like a, a wise choice on Lot's part. Why wouldn't he choose the rich, life-giving green fields that surround Sodom? But there's this one detail in verse 13 which tells us, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's, it just leaves the story there and comes back to it much later. But that detail is so important. The land looked so good, and it promised so much good to Lot. Look at the green fields, come, we'll sustain you. And yet, it was overshadowed by this city of wickedness. We don't have time this morning to go through all the consequences of Lot's decision. If you want to do that, you can look in Genesis chapter 9 and read that for yourself. But let me just say that Lot's choice in that moment was disastrous for his family. It, it almost cost him his life. If God had not shown him great mercy and taken him out of that portion that he'd chosen, then he would have died, uh, as was the case for his wife and for his sons-in-law. I tell you that story because Lot's decision is really a decision that every person has to make. All of us are choosing, in a very real sense, our portion in life. What what is it that we're going to trust in? What are we going to look to to provide sustenance for us, to provide life for us? What are we going to put our hope in? Our, our psalm today is about the portion which David chooses in life and the happy consequences of his choice. So let me give you just a brief outline of this psalm. Uh, it can be divided into three major sections the first six verses center around David's choosing his portion. It's his confident declaration that God is going to be his refuge, his portion in life. Then in verses 7 through 8, these describe how David makes God his portion. It, it shows us what does it actually look like to take refuge in God. And finally, verses 9 through 11 tell us about the blessings or the goodness of David's portion. So that's the outline of the psalm, and that's the outline we'll use to work through it, and starting in verses 1 through 6, choosing your portion. Uh, imagine with, with me again, David, he's on his journey, he's got the map of Psalm 15 in his hand, and he's looking down the way at this stretching, twisting, winding road, and he sees trials and perils and dangers along the way. And he lifts up his voice, his voice to God in verse 1 and says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So just as you might look down the way a bit in your own life and see 
trials coming up, things that produce anxiety in you, or you might be in the thick of a trial right now, David sees this road, sees the trials, and calls out to his God. He's saying, I've made you my portion in life, and now I'm asking you to keep me safe on this journey of life. Preserve me. That leads to the first observation that I want to make, which is this, that the portion we choose in life is the portion that we look to and expect help from. You can see this truth in everyday life. If you get in a car accident and you've chosen farmer's insurance as your portion, you don't call GEICO or Allstate because they're not going to be of any help. You, you go to your portion, right? Same way that a toddler, if a toddler gets lost in a store, she's not going to run to any stranger. She's going to call out for her portion in life, the one she trusts. She's going to call for her mother. When you meet with the trial, you take refuge in the thing that you trust. It's the thing that you expect to provide security and relief from, from whatever it is that's causing discomforts in life. David had put his trust in God. That was his portion. And so as he sees the difficulties of life, the dangers on the road, he cries out to God for help. Do you want to know a, a very easy and good way to find out what your portion is in life? Not just what you, you say is your portion, but what actually is your portion. Just ask yourself, when trouble comes into my life, where do I go for refuge? Where do I go for help? Adversity has a way of revealing our true portion. So let me just give you a couple of examples. If you have a difficult exam coming up and you feel the stress of needing to do well on it, do you take refuge in, in Netflix, something to kind of escape the difficulty of the situation? Or if there's tension in your marriage, do you take refuge in the comforts of another person or maybe find sanctuary in pornography? There's trouble with a boss or a coworker? Do you choose gossip for your portion? Do you find relief in slander, unloading your problems to another person? Food, alcohol, sex, video games, sports, shopping, work. What do you go to when life is beating you up? We see in these first six verses that David goes to God. A second observation in this section is found in verse 3. And that is that we have an affinity towards those who have chosen the same portion as us. David delights in those who have made God their portion their refuge, because they have the same hope. They have a shared experience in a common language. They can talk about the salvation of their Lord. They have fellowship around that. In, in John chapter 15, verse 19, says, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world has its own portion, its own refuge, that it goes to. It's all kinds of different things, but people gather around their chosen portion, and they have community around that. So, another question you could ask yourself to identify what, what is my portion in life? Not just what I give lip service to, but what is my portion? Just look around you and observe what community are you drawn to? What's uniting you? 
The one who has God as his refuge will have the people of God as his community. A third and final observation from this first section comes from verses 4 through 6. And that is that the kind of portion we choose is the kind of help we get. So I've, I've been around long enough, not that long, but long enough to know that there are certain brands of toilet paper that you just don't buy. It doesn't matter how good it looks. It's tempting because it's so cheap and there's so much of it. But if you, if you buy it, your sorrows will be multiplied. <laughs> in, your, in your moments of greatest need, it will fail you. <laughs> That's verse 4. The sorrows of those who went after another God shall multiply. If, if we really understood that and believed that, how much pain and suffering would we be spared? It's difficult, though, because these other gods, these false gods, little, little g-gods, are deceivers and liars. And they make themselves out to be so much more than they are. They do everything they can to seem attractive. They don't present themselves with their fangs bared, right? They come wrapped in these nice-looking packages, and their stench is masked over by sweet-smelling aromas. The fruits that Satan offered to Eve was delightful to the eyes, but it led to a curse. And the land to the east that was well-watered, like the Garden of Eden, brought death to Lot's family. Esau traded his birthright for a cup of stew. Think about that. All, all the privileges of his position as the firstborn, all the blessings that accompany that, in a moment, he gives it up because he's hungry and the soup smells so good. And he says, I, I'm going to die if I don't eat this soup. What good is the birthright to me if I, if I die from hunger? That's the power of a sinful craving. It, it will convince you that you need this for life or you'll die. Or one last example, consider the Israelites. They lived in bondage and misery in the land of Egypt. And God promised them freedom. They cry out to God. He answers them and says, I'm going to bring you out of that land. I'm going to bring you into a good land, flowing with milk and honey, a land of life. And as soon as they face hardship on the journey, on the way to this land, and this is what they say to Moses in Numbers 11, 4 through 5. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish where we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. It sounds like they're describing their, their dining experience on a luxury cruise. They've completely forgotten the, the misery that they had in slavery in Egypt. Just a short amount of time passes, and all they can remember is the, the pleasures of Egypt, the temptations of Egypt. Every single day, you are pelted with invitations from the world to come and choose its goods, its fare, as your portion in life, all the time. These false gods offer you a quick fix, a temporary respite from your troubles. But always, 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 in the end, it leads to multiplied sorrows. That's always the result. The first bite tastes nice, but, but then you see the maggots. 
That's the sort of help you get from another God. But David knows better. And he cries out in verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. And then in verse 6, he gives us some adjectives to describe the sort of help he gets from his God. The kind of portion it is. He says it's pleasant. It's beautiful. So unlike these false gods who appear pleasant, they appear beautiful, the Lord actually is. He's the portion that truly satisfies. We'll talk more about that when we get to the last section in 9 through 11. But first, we need to talk about what it actually means to choose God as your portion. What, what does that actually look like to take refuge in God? Is it, is it something you just declare? The Lord is my portion, and then it's so. That's the question uh, that we want to answer next. If you say Netflix is your portion, I can tell you what that looks like. It's pretty easy. It's not a very exciting picture, but it, it looks like you sitting down on a sofa or on your bed, and you're watching Netflix for hours and hours and hours. That's what it means to have Netflix as your portion. But what does it look like or mean to make God your portion? Verses 7 through 8 tell us. Look with me. David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Choosing God as your portion looks like setting your heart on God's ways. It not just looks like, that's what it is. Choosing God as your portion is setting your heart on God's ways. You receive counsel from the Lord. And in the night, your heart meditates on his word, on, on his character, on his ways. And so your heart instructs you as you're laying in bed. Your vision is fixed on God. It's filled with him. He's set before you. It's another way of saying that God, revealed in his word, is the meditation of your heart. So the very act of of setting your heart on his ways is making God your portion. It's taking refuge in him. If you go back to that, the illustration of David with his roadmap, going through the journey of life, this looks like David pouring over the roadmap of Psalm 15, taking in every turn. He's, he's memorizing the landmarks. He's thinking about the, the way that's marked out for him. In, in bed at night, he's meditating on, on his destination, what it looks like. It's imprinting this roadmap, God's word, on his heart and on his mind so that he'll walk in it. He'll walk in the right way. That's taking refuge in God. Now, before we go on to, to verses 9 through 11, I want you to notice one more thing about 7 through 8. Notice the intimacy between David and the Lord that's described here. As David uh, studies this roadmap, the word of God, the, the commands, everything that God has revealed for his people, David says, the Lord is counseling him. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Not, not a sheet of paper. And when David meditates on God's instructions in the night, he says, it's the Lord is before him. I have set the Lord always before me. This is an, an intimate relationship between David and the Lord. When you wake up in the morning and open, God, open God's word, or when you're thinking about a verse before 
you fall asleep at night. What's happening there? You're, you're not just collecting information from a textbook, right? You're not just reading this cold, distant list of rules. You're actually having communion with God. You're hearing from him and experiencing intimacy with the Lord. We have to ask God for a heart like that, that's soft to his word. We can't just manufacture that. We need him to replace a heart of stone with a heart of flesh so that his word comes alive and we experience fellowship with God, relationship with him. Okay, let's go to verses 9 through 11, the last section. So far we've seen in 1 through 6 that David has made God his portion. Then in 7 through 8 we've seen that he's made God his portion by setting his heart on his ways. And now in 9 through 11, we see the good results of having God as your portion. And that's joy and life. I don't have the, the subheadings uh, on the slides for you, so I'm sorry about that, but you'll have the, the main heading. So the goodness of God is your portion. Let me read 9 through 11 for us one more time. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. <clears throat> First observation in this section is that joy and life are present companions, but ultimately they are future destinations that require faith. So there is a sense in which joy in life is experienced now. And by David, it was experienced then, in his time. <clears throat> you see that because he, he says that his heart is glad. His whole being is rejoicing. That's, that's a current thing that's happening. And I'm sure that if you've made God your refuge, you can attest to the joy and the life that you've experienced, even now, in this life. But David's present experience of joy in life is really dependent on his faith in the future realities of joy in life. He's convinced that he will not be shaken in the future. That's in verse 8. And so therefore, he has joy in the present in verse 9. Or look at verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. That's a, that's a confident statement about the future. He's trusting that God's going to preserve him on this journey and the things that lie ahead of him. So there's a future orientation in this psalm. That's important because ultimately, the Christian's present life and joy are dependent upon a hope in a future, fully realized life and joy. We can experience all kinds of hardships, all kinds of calamities in the present and still rejoice because of a hope in the future of life and joy, an unshakable life and joy. That can't be taken from us. So even if you're in the middle of the worst trial of your life right now, you feel no stability right now at all, there's a reason to still have joy, because you know the outcome. The outcome is secured life and joy. And that brings us to another point. The quality of your faith determines the quality of your present joy. 
why does David have a happy heart? Why, why is his whole being rejoicing? You have to look at the therefore at the beginning of verse 9, which tells us to look back to know the answer. In verse 8, we see a confident declaration that God is with him. And so, he's fully convinced that he will never be shaken. He's convinced about his future security in the refuge of God. Future trials and future dangers are not going to be able to knock him down. He has a strong faith, and the outcome is he rejoices in his secure position that he knows awaits him. This point should be pretty obvious. If you, if you really believe that the outcome of any situation is going to be good, what is going to be your demeanor in the situation? You're going to have a, a certain measure of, of joy. Even as you experience suffering and you're grieving over some loss, that will happen. But there will still be that joy that can't be taken away because you know the end result. Tim Keller uses a, a great illustration. Two passengers who get on a plane, and they both uh, have faith to step onto this plane. They trust their lives to this plane. But as the plane's getting ready to take off, one passenger is beginning to doubt. He's doubting the integrity of the plane. He's not sure if they're going to make it. He says, anything could happen. The engine could fail. The, the pilots could uh, err in some way, and this plane could go down. And he's, he's starting to sweat bullets. The other passenger sitting next to him says, the, the plane, the structure of the plane is sound. The, the pilot's in good health. He's skilled. I'm, we're going to arrive just fine. Don't worry about it. So one has strong faith. The other has a very weak faith. And the question that, that Keller asks is, which, which faith brings the person, the passenger, to the final destination? Which one makes it? And the answer is both of them make it. Because the quality of their faith doesn't affect the object of their faith, which is the plane. Because one person starts to doubt the integrity of the plane doesn't mean that the plane's going to go down for him, whereas for the other, it will arrive safely. So the quality of our faith doesn't affect the object of our faith. However, will their experience on the journey, on the flight, be the same, or will it be different? It's going to be very different. The one with weak faith is not going to have the fullness of joy on this trip. He's going to be full of anxiety and worry, whereas the other passenger is going to be able to sit back and sip on his Coke and watch, and watch the movie and enjoy the experience. He will have a joy because he's confident that they're going to reach the destination. David, in this psalm, has great faith. He makes confident declarations about his future. And as a result, he experiences great joy in the present. Okay, this, this next point is the key, I think, to the psalm. It gets to the fullness of the psalm, and it shows us what, what is the greatest point of application for us. And that is uh, the object of our faith. What is the object of our faith? In the illustration, it's, it's the plane. But for us, what is the object of our faith? And that is Jesus Christ. I don't get this from the psalm in itself. You don't see 
don't see the words Jesus Christ in this psalm. But I, I get this from the use of this psalm in the New Testament. This psalm comes up twice in the book of Acts. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, this should be on your screen, quotes verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 16, almost word for word, to a large crowd of people. And after he quotes this, these verses, he says this to the crowd. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and that's we are all witnesses. So Peter is using Psalm 16, the Psalm of David, and he's applying it to Christ. Paul does the same exact thing in Acts chapter 13. I'll read it for you very quickly. Again, he quotes Psalm 16, and then right after, he says to this crowd, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So what is happening here? Both Peter and Paul are saying the exact same thing. They're using the same logic for Psalm 16, which is that it's referring ultimately to Christ's resurrection. That, that is the life. Jesus didn't see corruption. He wasn't, he, his flesh did not decay. He was raised up to life, never to die again. Here's what I find so incredible about these two passages. They, they reveal something that you might not catch at first. They tell us that David, as he has embarked on this long, arduous journey that he's expressing in Psalm 16, David actually doesn't make it to his destination. David didn't make it. For all his desire to be with God, for all his longing to make God his refuge and portion, in the end, he doesn't reach his destination. What was, what was his, his hope? His desired destination. It was life and joy in God's presence. But what does Peter say? David died. He was buried. And his tomb is with us to this very day. Currently, David's body has been corrupted. Paul says the same thing. He fell asleep. He saw corruption. He didn't reach the goal. He didn't follow the map closely enough, that, that road map. He didn't always set his heart on God's ways and make God his portion. If you're familiar at all with David's history, you know he didn't always make God his portion. He made Bathsheba his portion and committed adultery with her. And then he took refuge in murder to cover it up. He, he took refuge in the security of his own army. If you remember, he took a census of the land, counted all the fighting men in the land, and God was, he disapproved because it was a lack of trust in the Lord. The journey was too difficult for David. And it's too difficult for you and I. That is the whole reason that Jesus came. It's because we are incapable of following the map to the destination. And so God sent his beloved son 
to make the journey on our behalf. He's the only one that has ever successfully completed the journey. He never once went after another God, although he was tempted to in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. He never went after another God. God was always, the Father was always his portion. And the proof that he followed the map perfectly, according to these two passages in Acts, is that he was resurrected. He arrived at his destination. He got life. And even now, he's experiencing the fullness of life and the joy, the fullness of joy in God's presence. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has made the journey for us. He didn't do it for himself. Why? Because he had life. He had joy with God. He was God before he ever came to the earth. So then why did he come? He, he came to make the journey for us. He didn't just do it and then say, guys, I made it, I followed the map, and it's good on the other side when you get there. The map is trustworthy, so just follow it and you'll be fine. Good luck. He doesn't do that. He actually goes on the journey for us so that if we come to him, he gives us the reward of his journey that he's completed freely. He invites us to himself. He says, I will bring you to the destination, to join life. So when I said David didn't make it, what I meant is he, he's not the one that we look to. He's not the one the psalm is ultimately about. David didn't make it. But David, in Christ, did make it. We can't make it. But we, in Christ, can make it. Because Christ did. Life and joy are ours in Christ. If we will only turn to Jesus and put our trust in him. Turn to him in faith and repentance. Then you are in him. Which means you are where he is. And he has reached the destination. And it's yours, all by grace, not by striving or by work, but by what he's done. Let me end our time together with, with one final appeal. If you have not yet turned to Jesus, would you come to him and make him your portion? The joy that he gives is so much better than any other little G God that you would go after in this world. All the joys of this world, they offer you a partial, passing joy. It's partial because it's just the joy of the, of the created thing in itself. It's passing because it always ends in sorrow. It won't last. But what does our psalm say about the joy that is in Christ? It says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. partial passing joy of the world, the full forever joy that's in God's presence in Christ. That's what can be ours, the full forever joy. So from this psalm, if we were to summarize it, we could say that in life's adversities, make God your portion by setting your heart on his ways, and he will be your life and joy. We can do that 
only in Christ, because he did it. He becomes our life and joy. Will you pray with me in closing? Lord, we thank you for these wonderful promises of life and joy. We thank you that you did not leave us in our own strength to find our way to them, but that you sent your son to do it on our behalf and to take us into that life. Lord, that he lived the perfect life, died a death on our behalf, that we would be resurrected with him and know the fullness of joy with God forever. Lord, may we have our eyes open to see how good this portion is and make him our portion. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.